good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm Isabella Tabarovsky with the Canon Institute. I'm going to make a couple of small announcements, and then we'll move right into the presentation. Uh, so tomorrow, uh, Thursday, February, 20, February 20th at 4 p.m., we're going to have an event titled China's Business in Central Asia, Power and Anxiety with Gulberna Oskan. Uh, apologies for mispronunciations. Friday, February 21st at 10 a.m., A Path Through the Mountains, Islam and Nationalism in the Caucasus with Sufyan Jamukhov. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us Tatiana Vagramenko, who is a postdoctoral researcher at University College Cork in Ireland and a George F. Cannon Fellow at the Cannon Institute. Tatiana has an MA uh, in the study of religions from St. Petersburg State University and also an MA in anthropology from European University of St. Petersburg. She received her PhD in anthropology from Maynooth University. Her project, Religious Minorities in Ukraine from the Soviet Underground to the Euromaidan, Pathways to Religious Freedom and Pluralism in Enlarging Europe was funded by... Hmm? Long title. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. Uh, it's, a, yeah, it's an academic project. It has to have a long title. Uh, it was funded by the Irish Research Council, and it draws on historical materials from the recently opened FS, uh, S SBU, former KGB archives in Ukraine, and the ethnography of the Maidan Revolution. Uh, so, Tatiana, uh, the way we're going to run this event, Tatiana is going to speak uh, for about half an hour, and then we're going to watch a short film. It's about 18 minutes or so long that I will illustrate uh, what she is going to tell us, and then we'll have a Q&A. So, without further ado. Thanks. Well, I try to make this, this title quite shorter. Uh, the uh, all the photos, because we will be talking about photos and films, so everything that you will see and hear, uh, stories that you will hear today, they come from the KGB archive that was recently declass declassified and open, fully open in Ukraine uh, as a result of Maidan revolution in, 19, in 2014. So the KGB archive in Ukraine, which actually I think this is one of the few uh, countries of the f in the post-Soviet space that fully opened the KGB archives. In Ukraine, there are about one million files, and there are different types of files, like surveillance files, penal files, secret directives, uh, circular uh, reports written by informers, collaborators, personal files of KGB officers, and many others. Visual material, like photographs, images, sketches, confiscated art, uh, confiscated manuscripts, and things that are confiscated photographs. Uh, considered a quite significant uh, collection in this archive. So we will be talking about photographs produced by the KGB. Uh, the KGB, the Soviet secret police uh, uh, that have different names just throughout its history, will be referring for the simplicity to the KGB. They photographed their target of surveillance, they photographed arrested people that were under their custody, they photographed um, crime scenes uh, or uh, some materials that was supposed to be evidence of crime. And uh, they also, KGB um, photography was, was one of the most uh, common means in the so-called uh, agent operational measures, along with other advanced surveillance and espionage techniques. Basically, they were using film cameras in order to uh, photograph targets of surveillance, they photographed intercepted materials. I will show you one, just some examples of surveillance photography. I, will, I won't be talking much about that uh, cate category of photographs. These photographs were taken by hidden camera during surveillance operation against the troll witnesses in Ukraine in the 50s. Those manuals instructed how photographs should be taken, how to use hidden, hidden cameras uh, during surveillance operation, how to photograph arrested people, and so on. Uh, confiscated materials, confiscated photographs, photo albums, considered probably one of the largest uh, uh, collection uh, of visual material. I won't be talking much about that today. Uh, photographs were also subject to some kind of material inter intervention, like photo collage, uh, montage, cropping, retouching, many other, I will show you some of this uh, experimentation with photographs made by the KGB too. Uh, all the photographs that we will see today, they were top secret documents. Basically, only a few 
officers who had access to a particular part of Seattle, technically. But nevertheless, they had social life. They had quite a lot of social biography and the other part of it they would see. They could be, they personally traveled between KGB officers. They could be sent to Moscow as a recruit. They could be sent to some regional office as an exchange of information. They also created this very funny publishing for uh, uh, hours of this month. It was produced in Siberia in 1958 and sent to the uh, to Ukraine. It was a KGB top secret for the hour. KGB only very Christ. Uh, the last it was published in order to be accredited for its internal KGB special product which enabled the architects of KGB officers and some parts of officials because they actually didn't pursue any accuracy or objectivity or neutrality. Uh, the main principle was rather uh, to produce a certain regime of truth. It was not even to fabricate a case or to prove the guilt. I, I, would, s I would argue that the main idea was to produce an image of, of, of an enemy. It's a kind of a knowledge about the Soviet enemy that was so powerful, the image of an enemy was so powerful during the entire Soviet period. And in this case, in this, in this frame, KGB photography was a kind of an element of technology of power. But who was uh, the enemy? <laughs> there were actually many enemies, you kind of figure out, but today hero, today's enemy uh, would be religion. Religion as something very dangerous on its own. Religion as enemy was a very powerful image. There was thousands of posters, uh, publications, uh, films, whatever you can imagine that was just uh, instilling this idea that religion is dangerous. And for our talk today, it's very important to understand that believers themselves or priests themselves, they were not considered to be enemy. And you might be surprised, but in the Soviet Union, uh, Believers were never persecuted but for their beliefs, although millions of them ended up in the Gulag. Because and actually officially on the Soviet constitution, so the Soviet constitution granted religious freedom. They were uh, persecuted as people who were hiding behind their religious beliefs some kind of political subversion. And therefore, uh, it was the enemy, not a particular believer, but it was a kind of a the system, the, uh, the class, counter-revolutionary class, that were hiding some political subversion behind the religious practice. And therefore, believers were quite often and most likely would be charged as spies, as couriers of some organization, uh, or as member of terrorist organization. Like this case, the true orthodox movement, that was a kind of uh, the movement that uh, split from the orthodox church uh, they did not accept Soviet, Soviet power, they went on the ground, and there was kind of dispersed believers and communities that were practicing their faith, private homes, underground. But the KGB created a giant uh, image of, uh, of red dragonids because they were preaching that red communists are actually red dragon from the apocalypses. And they were charged as red dragon type organizations, ecclesiastic monarchies underground, as members of counter-revolutionary terrorist organization. That was the image, and the KGB photography, the visual experimentation was very important and crucial in constructing this image. And we will see 
uh, how they did it. Uh, let me tell you a story that was happened. It had happened in 1945, but in the 40s, the Ukrainian police uh, discovered a whole network of underground monasteries and churches. They were located in caves underneath of rural houses, and in 19 and uh, it was kind of uh, it was seemingly there was orthodox, probably true orthodox church uh, led by one catacomb priest in that area, Serafim, Father Serafim. In 1945, the police, the KGB raided uh, one, of the, one of the 15 uh, um, underground monastery that uh, was uh, constructed underneath, or underneath of this rural house in Ukraine. When they broke out in the monastery, they found some 20, peop 20 people, mainly nuns and, and monks who were praying and who actually were living underground. They took photographs of the raided place and it's actually the only survival visual record of this of any kind of underground monastery of that region of that time because they were consistently destroyed by the police. So the the monastery, the, the entrance to monastery was hidden within a wall of a vault by a wooden structure. The, the first this on the uh, on that photograph you can see the entrance and the ladder to the underground monastery. Inside, uh, there were arcway gallery that led to many premises, including a church with its own proper altar. And according to the file, it could fit up to 300 people. That's all, all constructed underground. The police arrested uh, Father Serafim because he was uh, among those living underground. And they took a picture of this kind of classical crime scene photograph. Uh, he's sitting here in the center, surrounded by confiscated uh, religious items that were taken from underground and just piled, uh, piled together. Uh, you can see icons, there were some uh, uh, priest vestment, uh, crosses, uh, on another uh, photograph there would be some, some valuables. So the production of the knowledge of this enemy, uh, we keep in mind that the enemy is a kind of a member of a terrorist organization, would start at this early stage. Let's compare these two photographs. That is a photograph that is um, the, the only pre-arrest portrait uh, taken by the community itself. And you can see those same items, those same icons across a religious, uh, uh, a monk vestment, and actually the same person. But the, the, the meaning of these two photographs are fundamentally different. On the portrait, Seraphim is holding a cross, which is, in according to Orthodox tradition, is a symbol of martyrdom. Uh, he's sitting in his monastic uh, clothes. The message of the image is to show a devotional believer and most likely a saint and a martyr. On this crime scene photograph, it's the same person with the same religious items, but the relationship, the religious meaning of these items, and not, not the meaning is not religious anymore. They are. Uh, the material evidence of crime, and he is not a devotionally uh, 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 a devotional believer anymore. He's sitting here to prove his own real, his own guilt. The further step in this kind of evolution of the context of the image would be full decontextualization of the, uh, of the body, arrest photographs. It was multiple, probably the biggest uh, collection, because every penal file will open up with arrest photograph. Here. Seraphim, the picture of Seraphim that was taken shortly after the raid, uh, there is no any sign of his social identity, no, no signs of anything that, is, that could say that he was is a religious a devotional believer. Even the name, he loses his name because now he's identified not with his m monastic name, Seraphim, but with his birth name. This is the only sign, uh, the only trace of his, uh, of his unique identity. Uh, arrest photographs, to me, was the most striking images uh, uh, from the KGB archives because they were supposed to be neutral. There is no any signs of violence there, but at the same time, they are the most shocking because um, they remove any sign of individuality. Uh, there is they fully decontextualize and dehumanize the body. There is no identity, there is no agency of a person, there is no any unique uh, life experience. As John Tag, a photography historian in his book, uh, The Burden of Representation, writes, 
It is a, a writes about the mugshots, the arrest, the arrest photographs. It is a portrait of the product of the disciplinary method, the body made object, divided and studied, subjected and made subject. One accumulated such images amount a new representation of society. But uh, what happens if something goes wrong? And if a person, for example, resists to this such kind of disciplinary technology, because this is the aim of the state to, um, that's how the state wants to see its criminal. Disciplined body, bodies, no signs of agency, no traces of their subjective, uh, their, their subversive identities. But what if the person resists and he closes his eyes while being photographed, or turns her head away, or sings or cries while being photographed? This, uh, let me tell you a story of these people. There were 23 believers. Uh, arrested in Ukraine, in several villages in, in the 50s. Nobody knew actually who they were. The co-villagers were guessing they probably were Baptist, but at the same time they knew that they had uh, Orthodox icons at home, but they didn't go to Orthodox church. So kind of when they asked about, uh, about, the, about their faith, uh, the, the be these believers, the believers answered, God knows. That's it. So the KGB arrested them and charged them as members of the true orthodox ecclesiastic monarchist underground terrorist organization. Uh, all we know about them now, that they were peasants, most, most of them illiterate uh, peasants, who did not join kolkhozes or any other state enterprises. They did not uh, accept documents, pass Soviet passports. They did not touch Soviet money because for them it was a sign of, uh, of a dragon. And all they did is just cultivated their piece of land. Uh, they did some casual day labor in, in exchange for food and, and, and clothes. And they were gathering together to pray at home. That our terrorist. So the, the, the trial was very unusual. It took, first of all, only three days to arrest, to, to, to undertake all investigation, and then to, to charge them to their standard 25 years of labor camp. But it was very unusual because, first of all, they, did, they resisted the arrest. They barricaded the entrance, they tore their clothes off, and they were kind of sinning, they were sinning and praying all the time. During interrogation, during uh, court hearing, they were just standing and, see and singing religious hymns. And for any question, they answer, God knows, I will be answering only in before the judgment of God. So the police took their pictures and they were all wrong, everything was wrong. So they decided to, to restore the kind of uh, the uh, attempts to restore the visual regime of truth. They, 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 they tried to correct these spoiled photographs and to remove the traces of their violent, uh, uh, their violent intervention. The brushed, copy, the brushed up, brushed up copies were used for official documentation, but we were lucky enough that they, they, the, the original small, original photographs, they just decided not to destroy it and then enclose in a small envelope and then touched in the same file. So this is a kind of uh, primitive photo montage, shaded gloves and hands, and that gives us an insight into the mechanism at work that reveals further struggle in the domain of photography. People who scream out their truth and the state that make offenders submissive and force them to yell out their truth. This is kind of discursive, discursive struggle between two antagonistic regimes of truth. An image that transformed an object or, uh, that is transformed into kind of an object of political confrontation. But this is the an image, this is a technology, this is a disciplinary technology, how even to correct a visual representation and to, m to turn resistance into suppression, to turn religion into crime. But let's go back to standard mugshot. A believer is turned into a criminal, his social identity as an orthodox priest, as in this case, um, or a prophet or whatever, is removed. We don't know who he is. But the aim is not achieved because, as I told you, the believers have to be charged as members of a terrorist organization. So what would, what would you do in order to visually, uh, to visually represent this idea of he, him being a member of a terrorist organization? What would you do? Be creative. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do 
in order to visually represent that this man is a member of a terrorist organization. A corrupt lapel pin. <laughs> Else? Add a weapon. Okay, very good. But it would not be, he would be just a terrorist. He would not be a member of a, of, of a terrorist organization. They very easy. You just have to put them together and to publish as a photo collage. This is, you see, the, the counter-revolutionary ecclesiastic monarchist organization. And that same person is here. They would be here. And actually, uh, uh, this, when actually this, this photograph was published at a bigger size as part of our exhibition, I will tell you about. about. And only when it was published like twice big as this, I, I, I found that this person, this photograph and this photograph. Actually, they are not mugshots, but just some confiscated materials, but with just shaded, removed background to make them look like these are uh, mugshots. <laughs> these two photo collages come uh, from two um, uh, penal files that are called exemplary penal, penal files. Basically, they were published as instructive ins instruction, as a kind of manual, how to do, how to well-done uh, investigation against there's some that some true orthodox uh, ecclesiastic monarchist underground uh, terrorist organization and uh, the first photograph the first photo collage this one it's a kind of represents more complex narrative because you see uh, this photograph this and this this is a priest this is uh, now because she's dressed in her full monastic clothing this is, uh, according to the file, a holy evil person. Basically, the kind of local prophet, local charismatic leader that was venerated as a, prof as a prophet. He is pictured half reclining, surrounded with pictures. Great. Uh, so, uh, in order to construct this kind of this is idea that the, these three these three pictures represent the leaders. Uh, the, the supposed leaders of this organization. So the, the KGB went so creative, they decided, okay, we just not put them together, but we, okay, thanks. That yeah, because we're recording, so when you're oh, far great. from the mic, we can't okay. record. I, I will be sitting, <laughs> I, will glue, I will glue it. <laughs> <laughs> so in order to visualize them as being leaders, the KGB even allowed to use some confiscated materials because if they just a simple mugshot wouldn't tell that, but they needed even to trace, to, to, to show some traces of their original social identity or cultural identity in order to visualize this idea. The irony of this particular mugshot is, uh, of this particular photo collage, is that neither of these, those three actually were arrested as part of this trial. They just, the police just didn't have their mugshots, but they used some kind of, I would assume even accidentally, I'd use some, some material at hand, some confiscated material, some con confiscated images. They just nicely decorated, pasted, and voila, we have an ideal uh, image of the, some kind of clandestine terrorist organization. Uh, okay, so we have an evolution from a, a kind of, um, Visual, uh, an evolution of re visual representation of the criminal. We began with Seraphim sitting as a crime scene, sitting the, for the last time surrounded by the religious items that are not religious anymore, but just an evidence of crime. Then we have full decontextualization of a body, arrest mark shots, there is nothing, just name and a face. Then we have this kind of recontextualization of mark shots by placing them together in a certain classifying order. But uh, there was, there were one step more. When the image undergoes a full process of dehumanization, when the body loses its ultimate visual, visual sign of identity, what would be lost in this case? What would be the ultimate visual signs of identity here? What would you do here? Exactly, the face. Religious network schemes we have an ideal representation of an organ of, of some centralized network organization. A person, a body is turned into a dot, triangle or circle, like here there would be triangle. Sometimes there is only name, sometimes there is no name but numbers. If you can see here, there is a numbers, oh no, 
Tell us on. I, I think you just have to jump the last time. I think it's, is it on? I think it's on. Yeah. Is it on? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay, so there's numbers of people arrested in a, in a, in a local cell. Then we have kind of connection through couriers. This is a kind of a circled cross twice. This is a courier that is establishing connection between the local cells and some center. Then all the centers are subordinated to some regional center, center. And at the top of the pyramid, we have a center, all Soviet Union center of whatever, administrative, political uh, center of this organization. Here would be a more complicated because there is some connection with groups I that are in exile in Siberia or with groups that are in immigration somewhere in, in, in Europe. Uh, so this is how, this is the way an ideal or idealistic image of insurgent, espionage, terrorist, counter-revolutionary conspiracy organization was fully accomplished. And the rep representing religious groups in this way was part of this typical strategy of politicization of religion in order to validi validate repress uh, repressive action. Uh, the last category uh, I would like to talk about is reenactment as surveillance photographs. Basically, when there was no, when, when the police could not obtain uh, surveillance photographs, they would just be staged with people who were already arrested. But before, this is a photographic categories provided by James Capolo in his research on um, religious minorities in secret police archives in Eastern Europe. And before, uh, I would like to just tell you a couple of words about these confiscated photographs and just to refer you to a website that uh, uh, James Capolo and I'm proud to be part of this bigger project we are creating a digital database, digital archive, every all documents on visual material that we, which we find from uh, secret police archives in Romania, Hungary, uh, Moldova, Ukraine. We publish it here, we upload them in, in digital, it says hiddengalleries.eu. Uh, you can search by, browse by collections or by, by, by entry. Every entry would have one to four uh, photograph with some, um, some description stories that is hidden behind. Um, so I highly recommend you to, to, to have a look at this. Let's go back to, um, to reenactment as surveillance photographs. This photograph, photo album I found pasted in a file uh, again, uh, uh, an penal file of uh, Father Mitrofan. He was a orthodox, an Orthodox priest in Ukraine who was arrested in the 1950s and, and, his, his, and his community. Uh, so um, these photographs in the file were supposed to be surveillance photograph of his and his, of his community. Uh, you can see him dressed in, uh, in, in, in priest vestment, performing some religious ritual, uh, talking to his, um, to his members of his community. Even there is a, a photograph of, of a ritual of washing the feet. When I saw these pictures for the first time, I thought, there's something strange. Is this a surveillance photographs taken by a hidden camera? By why the quality for the 1950s is too good? And also, if you can see, th there is something strange, the light is a professional light that targets faces. It is it's like a studio, uh, studio, uh, uh, studio light. Then I started digging deep, in, uh, digging deep in the file and just to try to find out what the story was behind. And actually I was right. Um, uh, it was a fake. It was staged uh, representation of surveillance and ritual representation of rituals. But uh, I found the original source of, this, of these photographs. And that actually was, they were still images from taking from the film. And the KGB borrowed this film, pasted these photographs as official proof of guilt. More than that, I found the film that we will be watching tonight, uh, today. Uh, and moreover, I found the memoirs written by filmmaker. So I have three sources come together into one story. So the story is the film that you will see now uh, features the public trial of Mitrafan and his community that happened 1958 or 59. I uh, don't remember exactly now. And um, 
it shows a religious community in its supposedly natural context, the film. Uh, in the film, uh, Father Mitrofan uh, makes public self-denunciation and uh, he releases himself from a priest status and as a sign of that he will take off his priest cross. And not a surprise that the draft of his speech was enclosed in the, in, in, in the KGB file. So basically he was uh, reading what was written for him. Not a surprise by now that the script of entire public trial was enclosed in the KGB archive. And not a surprise that the script of the entire film was given by a filmmaker. And that's what he remembers when he, at that if he was a young, that was his first film, he was hired by the KGB to make this film. He arrives in the village where Mitrofan lived, he goes to a KGB office and then they handle him, they gave him the, uh, the script, this is what he will have to do. Uh, then the next, the following morning, they invited, they invited him to see uh, the arrest of Mitrafan, and then he remembers, recollects his memories that Mitrafan, by the time was a very old and sick man. He was shocked by the arrest and he kind of gave up saying, okay, I will do whatever you want. Uh, the film shows uh, some kind of food, the abundant reserve, reserve, reserves of food, uh, showing the, the, the Mitrafan is like black marketeer. And uh, the filmmaker actually says, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that, it wasn't the case because he ran a soup kitchen. Uh, and that was in the time of scarcity, uh, Ukrainian villages just survived uh, famine, they were poor and struggling to survive. So uh, that was a center, of a, a vital center for um, a local informal economy. So the film continues the logic of the secret police file. Uh, only through the film we understand why there is this suitcase, where is the coffin, what's wrong with them, both this in the film, both the, the suitcase and the coffin will open and we'll see what's inside. So um, that is kind of the film as well, the public trial uh, of uh, Mitrafan becomes uh, an extension of secret police file. And at the same time, the KGB that used images, still images from the film, uh, in as proofs of Mitrofan criminals, uh, criminal activity and crime evidence. So let's stop talking and watch the film. It was produced 1959 uh, by Ukrainian uh, studio. It's in Ukrainian, half Ukrainian, half in, uh, uh, in Russian with, I made English subtitles. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, this was fascinating. Um, so I want to um, ask you to tell us, I mean, this is such a bizarre spectacle once you realize that this was all scripted and yet there are people, I mean, to what extent are the people in the audience, for example, the extras? Do they realize that they're in this bizarre reality show? Or are they experiencing it as a real thing, the real shaming of a real priest? Who in this show knows that they are part of a spectacle and who are just there because they think it's for real? Well, it's a good question. Things like that happened on a regular basis. Either it was a public trial or it was some kind of anti-sectarian evening, whatever. So people were quite used as quite used as gathering at such events. Sometimes they were brought, sometimes there was obligatory because they were party members, so they didn't, they didn't want to get into troubles. So when you have this and many other signs of fake slash real, I'm not sure that, well, that, is, that becomes reality because all, all reality is constructed. And uh, it's it's hard to believe. It's hard to be sure who among those who were sitting there were believed what's that was the truth. Who knew that it was all scripted? It was. A, I think it was a, a mixture of everything. Some many of them knew that it's a kind of game that everybody has to play. Uh, they playing uh, witness witnesses them playing defendants. So that was all in in many ways that all were about. The knowing the rules of the game if you want to survive. And I want to ask you one more question. So uh, you talk about the KGB constructing the image of the enemy. So it's a particular framework that they're fitting reality into, right? So they, you have to be thinking in those terms. There is this terrorist network, you know, uh, you know clandestine, etc. 
are they the ones who are in fact creating this, these ideas? Is that, how, how does this happen? This is like a group of people at the KGB sits down and thinks that, well, this is how we see the world, uh, this is what we want to project, or is it just, it just comes naturally? How, what's, do we understand the bigger picture there? And is it just them who's devising this reality uh, or this framework for understanding reality? Are there others in the apparatus who are doing it? I mean, well, that's a system, that's a huge, complicated system. It's very difficult to see where the roots are and where they head. But uh, I found a good number of this kind of instruct exemplary, as I, I mentioned, exemplary penal case or some, in, uh, some manuals that local KGB officers, but actually I asked the archivist, what's this, why this penal case published as a brochure? Uh, what's the story about that? And then she answered, well, you know, these are kind of, you know, um, true orthodox or Jehovah Witnesses. Maybe a person, a KGB officer who lives somewhere in, uh, in Lviv, he doesn't know no idea what's going on, but he has to, he has, he, he, he received quarter and that he had to charge like several, had to have several trials, four about Jehovah Witnesses, five about Pentecostal. So Moscow sent these instruct instructions, this exemplary penal files, so for them to know what's what to do. There were images, there were some kind of quotations of uh, interrogation, so they know what uh, questions to answer, to ask, and what question to what answers to write down interrogation uh, protocols. That all was, in a way, fully constructed. Mm -hmm. And in the end, people's life, who, who would be arrested, particularly in the, in the 30s during the, the Stalin's great terror, terror, it wasn't that important who would be a part of this uh, dramatic, tragic game. Thank you. Do we have questions in the audience? Okay, so let's go over here. Hi, uh, thanks very much, that was really fascinating. Um, yes. I have a quick factual question, something I'm not sure I understood what you said, uh, and then a more substantive question. So just factually, so this film was made in 59. Did I understand that this was related to the uh, groups who were rounded up in 1945 in mm, Ukraine? It's no. a different, well, it's the same, they were charged both, uh, both groups as uh, members of truth or the truth, uh, a true Orthodox Church, but it was different. Different people, okay, regions, cool. yeah. um, my second question sort of uh, follows from Ms. Tavarovsky's question. Um, so obviously this film was made by s people who knew something about making films, right? Sure. Um, and I'm also, the, you know, even aside from the courtroom scenes, for lack of a better word, there's clearly some people there who are, look like they're actors. I, or it's, you know, it's, it's not literal actual street scenes and, and that sort of thing. So I'm wondering what you know about um, the actual sort of making of this or comparable films and the infrastructure and whatnot. So for instance, were they, were they, did the KGB have this in-house capability or were they borrowing people from the Soviet cinema industry? Or what do you know about li literally the creation, the production of this film? Thanks for a uh, question. Uh, they didn't need to have any uh, studio, in-house studio, because everything was at their service. Uh, for this particular case, they hired a filmmaker. They gave him everything they needed. So there was no any professional actor here. Uh, why you need to pay for professional actor if these people will be do it for free? Uh, just from people from streets, they gather. Some of them would be gathered because it's a big deal. A cameraman arrives in the village, so they were just attracted by curiosity. Uh, people who were defendants, obviously, uh, this is another case. So uh, it's a kind of there was um, mutual interdependency. All studios could not produce anything at all if that will not be written, approved by the party, and then in the end, the head is the KGB. Nothing can be uh, uh, produced without the uh, official approval of the KGB. And if the KGB needed to, any tools or any uh, human resources, everything was at their service. Okay, uh, let's go over here. Keep your hand up so that we. Uh, okay, okay, let's go over there. Okay. <laughs> I'm wondering why you picked this room rather than upstairs. <laughs> um, the God's honest truth is maybe a quarter of the people in this room actually saw the subtitles. Um, so I have to ask is this going to be put online, available online? Sorry. <coughs> subtitles. Can we make it available online? 
uh, I don't know about we can copyright. make it available online because that uh, film is purchased uh, for non-commercial reasons. So I have to be sure. I can I can show it any time, but I cannot make it public, unfortunately, because that was an agreement because be between me and the uh, and the archive. But we can show it any time. Okay. Yeah, sometimes our we're limited in the choices of auditoriums. There are many other events going on. Okay, please, right here. Thanks for coming. Pl keep your hand up so that we can see who is. Okay. Thank you. Can you tell us anything more specific about the um, the carrots and the sticks that were used to get people to com make such uh, such confessions? And um, how had these changed since the time of Stalin? What was new? What what remained? Thanks. Well, during the Stalin regime, everything was quite straightforward. There was violence. Uh, um, people were just the wheel were broken, uh, and then they were speaking against themselves. After Stalin died, there was a, a kind of that's the beginning of the golden age of the KGB because the the straightforward violence um, came uh, kind of they were uh, already. In they were, it was not it was not allowed anymore officially so that was the main the moment of surveillance blackmail more sophisticated uh, methods of surveillance control and pressure in this case uh, by the way in the case of the film this is the only file where that did not end uh, that I've seen from the 50s at least that did not end with the prison with uh, with the term I guess that there was an agreement you go for this trial and you're free. And the community decided, okay, we will go for this uh, public humiliation, but we will not receive our 25 years of labor camp because that in the, in the 1950s, in, uh, in mid to 1950s, that was from 10 to 25, that was a standard term. So that probably was one of the carrot and stick. Okay, so we have, we, uh, we have a question right there. That gentleman, yes, okay, and then we'll come here. Does each uh, former republic have KGB files of this sort? Sorry, say, say, ask again. Does each former republic have similar KGB files? Sure, every former Soviet republic has its own KGB archive. Every uh, city has its own KGB, and any oblast region has its own KGB uh, archive. Uh, in Ukraine, you can go and see whatever you want, whatever whatever is open. I, I, nearly everything is open. In Russia, unfortunately, it used to be more or less available in the, fift in the, in the 90s and with the Putin's uh, era is not anymore. Okay, please, right here. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'd like to ask a little bit about the time context. Really, why was the KGB doing this when the Soviet Union developed a very extensive anti-religious uh, propaganda organization. When I lived in Moscow in the early 80s, I got interested in this and went and had subscription to Nauka i Religia and went to all kinds of programs at Sananya societies in Moscow, in the provinces, in Central Asia, in the Caucasus that had anti-religious films and you know, space flight proves there is no God, that kind of stuff, and it was boring beyond human belief. But my question really is, okay, this was made in the late 50s, and it was made in Ukraine. Was the fact that this was Ukraine important in why the KGB got involved with it? Because normally, I mean, there was this whole institutional structure of anti-religious propaganda in the Soviet Union uh, that was doubtless under the broad supervision of the security services. Uh, but it didn't need to be specifically KGB because it was part of, it was under the Central Committee. Uh, so I'm a little, my question is, why was this specifically KGB when, uh, what and, and do you think that may have had to do with the fact that it was Ukraine? Ukraine, uh, Ukraine surely was a kind of a religious hotspot, but it's not the case. Uh, the so-called fifth uh, directorate of the KGB, the ideological diversia would be like subversion, ideological subversion, dealt with any kind of dissent. Religious dissent was always, through the very beginning, 1917, to, to the very end, was 
part of uh, this uh, of this uh, of this department. There was so-called church department that dealt with sectarians. Particularly, there was a kind of um, there were a number of regions that were had semi-legal legal status, like Orthodox Church, for example, or Roman Catholic Church. But they were uh, a number of uh, communities that were banned fully like Jehovah's Witnesses, Pentecostals, uh, uh, Greek Catholics, true Orthodox Church. That, there was a special, actually there was a special body that uh, was in charge of religion, this so-called uh, the Council for Religious Affairs. But sectarians who were illegal, who were criminals, that was in charge of the KGB. They were in charge of the KGB. And that was in the entire Soviet Union. That was the more or less centralized uh, system and Ukraine was not unique in this case. Thank you. Please, Michael. Yes, um, to pick up on this last point, I mean, I think one of the things that's coming out of these archives is that the um, secret police was providing things to the press, was involved in this broader propaganda ideological apparatus, sure, uh, yeah. or parts of it. But so my question is to relate the first part of your talk, sort of internal evidence, visual evidence, to the external propaganda film. And I, even your thesis said this was a sort of internal project of depicting ideological enemies. Would one talk about some sort of internal secret police propaganda? How do you conceptualize the difference between sort of external propaganda aimed at the public and the kind of model cases and images that are circulating only within the secret police? Uh, I'm, I don't know how far most of the pictures went. For example, the exemplary f penal file where these uh, schemes and photo collages uh, come from, uh, they were published 100 ex uh, exemplars. Uh, I've seen only one. I know where is the second is located. Where else? They could be sent to a party, uh, to the CICA, the central, the central committee of the party. They could be sent also uh, to some, this the, the because the party had this own department of this propaganda and uh, agitation, well, it's not agitation, but agitation and propaganda. So uh, I assume that many pictures, many photographs produced by the KGB ended up outside uh, the KGB walls. Uh, we have, I wanted to show you kind of internal mechanism that was used and developed within the walls of the KGB. But what, uh, to what extent this even top secret, we can see this even top secret document that they all were top secret, but we can see them absolutely freely uh, on the, uh, during these uh, films, the propaganda films. And that was not the only film that showed actually officially top secret documents. That was quite, quite traditional uh, for, for, for the Soviet cin cin cinematography. And the, the KGB uh, involved in the in, in film industry and this involvement was quite active. So it's just a matter of, I think, quite good number of these top secret things were in the end publicized. We have, uh, okay, right there, please. Thank you. <coughs> have you ever considered if there is any evidence that contradicts the fact that the actual priest in this particular movie could have been possibly an agent of the KGB uh, seeking to destroy people's faith? Oh, sure. That was the main idea. There was the main idea is just to see that there is nothing behind. There is just pure uh, spongery, there's pure lie. And that's, that was the main idea because that was already the beginning of Khrushchev anti-religious campaign, which meant to instill this idea that God doesn't exist and you don't need to believe. That's only, that's was the, that was the main aim. Oh, the, that's the priest who himself could be an agent. He probably signed an, uh, an agreement for collaboration because he was obviously collaborating with the KGB. I didn't see, because that could be also enclosed, I didn't see him signing anything, but it doesn't mean that it didn't exist because that, that thing were destroying in a kind of on a, on a, on a permanent basis. Good, good point. 
Oh, sure. Absolutely, sure. That's a good point, thanks. Okay, did we, I think, uh, right there. Mm -hmm. Hello, um, I'm Jiang Kim. I'm a staff intern for the Wilson Center. And first of all, thank you for your talk today. Thanks. Um, I was just curious. So we've seen a video today about the um, religious propaganda of KGB. And um, I was wondering, so during the Cold War, if um, there were other aspects related to this imagery of the enemy, except for the relig religious issues, so such as um, if there were any um, images of um, the United States presented inside by the KGB inside the Soviet Union? Oh, sure. Yes, there was just, I showed the only one enemy, and, that's I, and I, I began with there was loads of enemies, and the strategy was pretty much the same. They were constructing this giant caricature image where there was uh, the bourgeois, there was <coughs> loads of posters. If you go online and you find some kind of anti-American Soviet posters, there would be their piece of art, <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> Hard not to believe after that that America is so... <laughs> okay, I think we had... So do we have... Uh, okay, let's take that one question and we'll wrap up. I found the diagrams of structure of the uh, Red Dragonites very interesting, and I'm wondering... My favorite have part. Have they My favorite part. Have, <laughs> have they ever been compared to the structure of the KGB? <laughs> what is the KGB projecting? <laughs> 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 sort of, actually, yeah. That, <laughs> that was the self-projection, <laughs> could be. But similar diagrams, actually, uh, you could find... Uh, also, there was some in, in America. I, don't I forgot this, the diagrams. Who made a diagram of... KGB working with uh, or, or trying to spy on some American um, enterprises. Oh, I forgot. I think so, yes. So he did more or less, it looks more or less the same. Diagrams, schemes, these charts, there was obsession from both sides of the uh, Cold War, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> to see a hidden relations, hidden connections. All right, Tatiana, thank you very much for this Thanks fascinating for coming. presentation. Thank you. Thank you.